everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Mystery Spot podcast. This is a podcast giving you all the information regarding true crime, conspiracy theories, and mysteries. There's going to be a new episode every week, so make sure to try and keep track, and if there's anything you want covering, please let me know and I will try my best. Today's going to be a podcast about J.C. Lee Dugard, who is an incredible woman. I mean, literally an inspiration to us all about how hard life can be and you can still come out on top. I remember I first heard about her story when I saw a YouTube documentary about her and what happened. Um, I've also read her book to cover multiple, uh, cover to cover multiple times. Uh, it's called A Stolen Life for anyone who's interested in reading more from her perspective. It's such a fantastic book. So let's get on into the story. JC Ludegaard was 11 years old when she was kidnapped on, in June of 1991 in California. Her family was a very, very tight-knit family, meaning her stepfather and mother had a great relationship and she was close with her younger sister. Um, and they only actually just moved into the area nine months previously because, funnily enough, they decided it would be safer than where they used to live. Um, it was considered a very, very safe area. On the day it happened, which was June 10th, JC was in the fifth grade um, and she was making her way to school as usual. She walked to the bus stop at the top of the hill near her home, where a car pulled up next to her. She didn't think of this as being scary. She was in a safe neighbourhood. She'd walked to school and done this walk many times. So she just assumed the person was asking her for directions. However, within seconds, JC had fallen to the floor. She couldn't move and she was paralysed completely. The pain and the fear had made her actually wet herself. And the reason why she couldn't move was not that it was out of fear. It was because she had been tasered by the man driving the car. We would learn later that his name was Philip Garrido. The taser had meant that she was knocked unconscious. The car had actually pulled in front of her, cutting off her path to the bus stop. And when he tasered her and pulled her into the vehicle, she had nowhere else and no option to escape. In a split second, her life had changed from a girl who thought she was going on a school field trip in a couple of days with her friends to a girl who had no idea if she was going to see her family or the sunrise again in the morning. One of the scariest things about this case is actually that her stepfather saw all of this happen in slow motion from just down the street. And as soon as this happened, uh, and he saw this happen, he jumped on his bike and rode after the car with her in it. He speaks about this as being one of the most experienced the worst experience of his life because he couldn't be, you know, he couldn't catch up to her in the car and he knew that he wouldn't be able to reach out or do anything productive, but he tried his best anyway. He stopped halfway up the road, exhausted, um, trying to catch up with the car and sadly he didn't even see the registration plate and didn't get anywhere near the car. Immediately he called the police, telling him all the details they could remember, remembering the car, describing the car, um, he told them it was a two-toned grey car and helicopters were put into the air immediately to search for her and witness statements were taken. Immediately images of the car and the sketch um, of one of the people that he believed to have seen in the car and pictures of JC were all circulated throughout the media, all over the news, it was on every single channel, pictures and descriptions of JC and what had happened. This started an endless campaign to find JC. Her room remained untouched for many years by her parents and they did multiple press releases to get information about JC out there. Everybody pitched in to help. Even some of her mum's friends quit their jobs to help her mum search for her, starting this campaign and it lasted for many years. The town put up pink ribbons everywhere where she lived to remind everybody that she was out there somewhere and to keep her in their thoughts. 
The man who had taken JC wasn't acting alone. In the car alongside him was his wife, Nancy Greeder. She was the one who had actually helped him and chose JC from the street and helped him to kidnap her as a gift to him. They took JC to their home where she would remain for the next 18 years. When JC woke up, she was telling them that her parents were not rich people. She was pleading with them for her life, telling them both that she could not afford to pay a ransom and her parents had no money to pay any ransom. So, you know, begging and pleading for them to let her go. At 11 years old, she had her life changed for the first time when Philip Garrido handcuffed her little wrists together and raped her. He would tell her things like, you're doing this so that you save other girls. I wouldn't have to do this to them because I'm doing it to you. He continued this routine for years and he says that his excuse was that a voice in his head was telling him that he had to sleep with other girls and his wife Nancy was surprisingly fine with this. She was just grateful that her husband was happy and obviously she was as mentally disturbed as he was. Now, they didn't actually let keep JC in their house. They decided to build a series of little shacks and sheds in their back garden and they had quite a lot of land amongst all the other rubble and rubbish to blend in. Um, from the photographs, you can see that they had things such as an empty plastic swimming pool, uh, a large trampoline, all sort of blended in with all these sheds and, and shacks sort of put together. Um, and this is where they first left her um, in, a, in a tiny soundproof shed in the back garden. One of the tactics that Philip used to scare JC into submission and being good was and obviously not to try and escape, was, was fear. And that's probably one of the biggest uh, tactics that people who do this sort of thing use. He told her that he had savage dogs in his back garden keeping watch, and that if she tried to escape, the dogs would eat her and kill her. Obviously, as an 11-year-old girl, this was absolutely terrifying. Being kept in a small, damp shed as a sex slave with a bucket for a toilet, and the added pressure of an impending death if she tried to escape would have been crushing to her. She must have been devoid of hope. In her book, she describes how she used to keep herself occupied during the day and what her routine was. She also describes how Garrido had tried to groom her into trusting him, using typical bribes, uh, bribes such as McDonald's burgers, milkshakes, sweets, um, and he'd just bring them to her in this little shack. But she had nothing to do during the day other than wait for his arrival with these treats, or for more sinister reasons. She was alone in this little damp shed on day in day out for years after a little while philip decided to do her a favor i suppose you could call it and bring a tv set in for her to watch however she wasn't allowed to watch the news in case she saw coverage of herself in the case which of course was circulating throughout the news for a long time such as it would do now with madeline mccann she's always on the news and it's been years and years another thing that jc describes in her book is moments that she held on to while in captivity and not moments of things that had happened while she was there, but things that had happened before. So one of the things that she describes is um, a time that she had with her mother, and she held on to this for years. They had uh, a thing about the moon, and how the moon would change shape between a crescent moon and a full moon. And they used to argue when she was younger about what shape was best. And she had a small piece of window in the shed that wasn't covered up where she could look out and see the moon. She held on to this and it kept her sane, knowing that no matter where she was or where her mum was or what they were doing, they were looking at exactly the same moon. 
her mum describes that she would also think the same thing and that just shows how close they really were that they both described feeling the same things looking at the same moon and remembering each other and they'll hold on to that forever philip was a very very unstable man who would often go out and drunk drunk and drug drunk sorry and drug binges and make jc dress up in weird outfits and and act out very weird scenarios he believed in all sorts of weird religions and would listen to the voices in the walls at one point he even believed that he could speak to god um, after he had raped her, he would break down and apologise for it, uh, and Nancy would apologise too. Uh, Nancy would often tell JC that she was sorry that she'd let him do this to her, um, and she was, but she was enabling it all. She was very disturbed, and she was the one who would find the kids for him to take. So she was just as much guilty as he was, I believe. JC says that she tried not to cry very much, and over time this got less and less. She was given a diary by Philip and Nancy where she would write hours and hours worth of documentation of everything that had happened to her. But they were happy with her writing all this, which just goes to show how confident they were that she was never going to be found and that she was never going to release these papers to anybody. One horrid thing they did to her while she was in captivity was give her kittens. Now, to you or me, this sounds like a nice present for someone to come and give you a kitten. But he would remind her that these were very, very expensive kittens and she had to keep them com- keep them company and look after them very well. This, in turn, made her so grateful to Philip for giving her this morsel of hope and companionship. But slowly over time, these cats would disappear. But she writes in her book about how she believed that he was killing them, further messing with her mind even more. After a few years had passed in 1994, when JC was 13, she first discovered that she was pregnant by Philip Garrido. The first time they told her about it was over a casual conversation while she was eating in the same room as them, and they told her she was pregnant. But at this age, she didn't know anything about pregnancy or babies or sex. She had no idea what it meant, the link between having sex and getting pregnant, or what even entailed with being pregnant or going into labour. But at this point, she was already four months gone. So being 13 and four months pregnant is absolutely horrific and I couldn't imagine how she would have felt. What makes it even worse is that she was actually not able to receive any sort of medical attention or medical care from a doctor or a professional because that would mean that she would have to leave the house and spend time with Philip and Nancy and they would be found out. So he told her that he would perform the birth in her little shed after watching birthing videos in the very room. Can you just take a moment to imagine how that would be? You're in this situation. You've got no hope. You have found out that you're pregnant. You don't really know what that means or what it entails entirely. And that you're going to have to give birth with the man who's kidnapped you in a small damp shed. And then in August, at 14 years old, she went on to have a baby go into labour in that tiny little shed in their back garden. Now, remember I told you previously that the shed was soundproof. So when she actually went into labour, they had no idea that she was in labour or crying or in pain. And she was alone in that shed for a long time in labour. And they had no idea. So she had no sort of form of communication either. They didn't give her anything. There was no sort of intercom system or phone or anything like that. They would just occasionally come in and check on her. Eventually, they did come to see her and found that she's in labour. And they delivered the baby. But this birth was not without complications, as 
you would think because it's in a shed in a, and she was under a lot of stress um, and the baby actually came out with the cord wrapped around its neck and she gave birth to a baby girl. JC was surprisingly happy for this baby. She felt so happy that somebody was hers, was going to love her unconditionally and give her something to live for, something to do during the day. You know, looking after a baby takes a lot of time and energy and she had nothing to do. So now she had this baby. She was so grateful that it was something that was going to keep her mind off the horrific reality that was her life. A few years later, she even had another child. So now she had two children in his back garden living in this tiny shed. She would set up a school in her back garden um, because obviously the children couldn't go to school. You know, where would Philip and Nancy have got these children, especially when she wasn't pregnant? She wasn't going, Nancy wasn't going out pregnant, so where would they have got these children? So they decided to keep them home with, with JC. And she stayed in the garden with them and created this school in the back garden. Um, however, you know, if you think about it, JC was 11 when she was kidnapped, which means she only had the education up to the age of 11. You know, I've got a brother who's 11 and, and his level of education is nowhere near sufficient to be able to teach two young children how to live life, especially with the lack of resources she would have had in the back garden. Um... And even if they had gone to school and uh, and they had have got them in and nobody suspected anything, how easy would it have been for JC to tell the children, to tell a teacher what had happened, for them to go in and say, oh yeah, my mum lives in the garden. Teachers would have seen this as a red flag and immediately something would have been done about it. So she tried her best with what she had. Nancy was a jealous person. And she was very jealous of the relationship that JC had with Philip, even though Nancy was his wife and JC did not want this relationship. So she decided to do the ultimate sort of kick in the teeth, I would say, as to have the girls call Nancy mum instead of JC. Um, and by now they'd actually renamed JC as Alyssa. That made JC their sister and Nancy their mum. And she had to go along with it, she had no other choice. Obviously, JC was devastated, but she would take any time with her children as she could. One thing that's interesting to see is that she could have actually escaped many, many times. And without it being her fault, she came into contact with a lot of people. You know, she didn't seek them out. It was people who would maybe come to the house. And as she got older, the Garrido sort of get, got more trust in her. The years went by and years passed as that she was spending time there. And they, they sort of trusted her a little bit more. Um, she could have told people who they were, who she was, but she didn't, and she could have been helped, such as neighbours. You know, she would be in the garden, and, and next door neighbour would speak to her, and she would just chat to them as if she was cleaning in the garden or doing some gardening. But she never did. She never told them. In the two thousands, JC was actually allowed to work with Philip. And when I say work, she wasn't getting paid, but it was something that she was allowed to do during the day to help Philip, and it gave her something to focus on. She was so mentally controlled by Philip that even when she was answering the phone to people regarding the work, she never told anybody who she was. So many opportunities for her to say this to people. I'm JC Lee Dugard, please ring the police, please help me, and she never did. One of the things that she speaks about in her book is that she... She hates the use of the term Stockholm Syndrome. 
Um, and I just want to make it clear that she doesn't actually have Stockholm Syndrome and she really, really despises being referred to as having this. Now, if you don't know what Stockholm Syndrome is, Stockholm Syndrome is defined as being feelings of trust or affection felt in certain cases of kidnapping or hostage taking by a victim towards a captor. So she didn't love him. She didn't want to stay with him. She didn't have any feelings of affection towards him in any way. She was just terrified of what he was going to do to her or her children if she tried to leave. And the children kind of, although they were a saviour for her, they were also something tying her to them. So yes, she might have been able to escape. And yes, she might have had the opportunity to tell somebody who she was. But that doesn't mean that she could save her children too. Um... So that's really important to remember when you're thinking about why she didn't tell anybody is that she didn't have Stockholm Syndrome. That's not an explanation for why she didn't leave. There are other factors involved in why she didn't escape. In 2009, she was actually moved further back into the land they, they earned uh, in another shed at the back of the garden and the children moved with her too. Now I suppose you're thinking, what on earth did the police do for all this time? You know, 18 years had passed and the police had no leads. They hadn't a suspect. They'd never arrested anybody. What were they doing all this time? Well, you'll be surprised to know that Philip Garrido's probation officer actually came onto the property where JC was being kept at one point and looked through the window at the back garden, searched his home, but didn't actually go into the back garden and do a good enough search. One time, you know, it it might be acceptable for them to just do a quick skim of the house once, but they went with the specific intention of making sure that he was following his parole. And JC was actually in the house one time when they came round. She was inside, not handcuffed, not locked up, or anything, you know, specific to hide her identity. They knocked on the door and walked in and saw her there and didn't do anything about it. Now, it's not as if she'd told them who she was, but they knew who he was, what he'd done in the past, and the fact that he shouldn't have young women in his house. And they didn't question it. So, you know, he was a previous offender on parole for, can you guess it, kidnapping. And nobody even questioned it. Even the neighbours knew she lived there and didn't even seem to think anything of it. They just thought, well, this this girl, Alyssa, lives in this house next door and she never cries and she never shouts out, so why would you think anything different? And I agree with this. You know, I live next door to people and, you know, why would you not assume that somebody lives there if they never complain or they never seem to be in any discomfort? And they never even looked into it at all. There were a few times when JC was actually caught out in public and the police didn't do anything to follow these up, um, such as in 1992, it was around April, when she was seen at a petrol station looking at her missing persons poster. Uh, this was reported to, by the police, reported to the police by the uh, petrol station attendant and they did nothing. Uh, 2006, a neighbour reported that the, the uh, Garridos had children living in a tent in his back garden and the police did nothing about these either. So, you know, I'll let you have your own thoughts on that one, but definitely I think you'll agree that somebody on parole for kidnapping and sexual and a sexual offender should not have been allowed to have any sort of rumours of children living in a tent in his back garden. So the day we've all been waiting to hear about, in August of 2009, everybody um, 
including JC and her daughters, were taken out of the house uh, onto a college campus where he would talk um, about religion and he was running around and shouting that he was the chosen one and that he could hear the voice of God in a box. Um, And like I've told you, he was a very, very strange man, harassing people to believe that he was the voice of God. Um, But are any of us really surprised that he's acting this way because he was such a weird person? Uh, two police officers actually saw what he was doing on campus and were a little bit alarmed um, but they also saw the girls with him and the girls weren't acting any differently but these female police officers now sell, tell us how they had a gut instinct and intuition that something was not right and JC had never signalled to them in any way or shouted help to them but the women had decided to look into this further and this was the single greatest thing to ever happen to JC. Now she's an advocate for people to speak out if they think that something is wrong. Um, And I really, really do agree with this. If you're out somewhere and something doesn't look right, please report it. Because as soon as you do, and and I hope to God that you are wrong, but if you're right, you really can save somebody's life. So the two police officers went back to their little headquarters wherever they were working on campus and decided to come up with a plan on how they were going to find out a little bit more information. So they went back out and had a chat with him um, about what he was doing, why he was on campus, found out his name, sort of a bit more information on him, um, went back to their headquarters and had a look at, look, look at him on the system, see, what, see who he was and, and why they felt like they had this, this mother's intuition that something was wrong. And as soon as they saw that he was a registered sex offender and previous kidnapper, they immediately knew why this something felt wrong. So they brought them all down to the station and questioned them all separately. Now, here's something very frustrating that you're going to listen to and think, are you serious? So JC was taken into a questioning room separately from her children, from Nancy and Philip, and asked her true identity. JC still would not give up her real name. She kept telling them she was called Alyssa. That she, you know, she lived with Nancy and Philip and her sisters, and she kept feeding them the story, even though she was alone and in the presence of police officers. She was terrified to tell them. But they knew. They knew to dig deeper. They didn't know who she was, but they knew that something was wrong. And eventually she broke and asked if she could write down her real name for them as she was too terrified to speak it out loud. Once they saw the name, J.C. Lee Dugard, written in front of them on that piece of paper, everybody lost it. Knowing that they have had the opportunity to save her from 18 years of captivity, they had done it. So they let her call her mum and see her, and her mum got the greatest call of her life. She took the call, they were both crying, telling her mum, quick, please, quick, please come get me, and her mum left work obviously straight away to drive to wherever JC was and pick her pick her daughter up after 18 years. In the meantime, while JC was calling her mum and waiting for her to pick her up, Nancy and Philip obviously were arrested on suspicion of kidnapping. This is such an amazing story. She had been tortured, sodomised, sexually assaulted in a shed for 18 years and just by chance, two police officers decide to look into it further. If you just think 
that if those police officers and parole officers who had visited Nancy and Philip's house had decided to take the same intuition and look into it just that little bit further, then she would have been saved for God knows how long she'd been kept in captivity. And JC was thankfully awarded $20 million by the state of California because police officers had failed to know failed to notice that she was in the house that day when they saw her and her young children too, knowing who he was and what he did, but they still took no notice. So that was absolutely incredible for her to get out of, of captivity with some sort of financial stability. Now, I think you're wondering what happened to Nancy and Philip. So Nancy and Philip were put on trial and Philip was actually given the rest of his life behind bars. So was Nancy. And you're going to be shocked, to be fair, because in the United Kingdom, our sort of justice system works a little bit differently. You'll get um, so many years to life, and that'll be your punishment, and you'll stay in prison for life. Whereas in America, they actually list how many years you've got. Even though it's life, they'll say how many years it is. So Philip was given 431 years in prison as part of a plea deal. So that's even less than what he was going to get. So he pleaded guilty for 431 years in prison, which I find absolutely astonishing. That is the punishment he deserves, if not the death penalty, but that's another, that is another podcast as to whether you believe that the death penalty should come back or not. Nancy, however, was given 36 years to life for kidnapping and rape. Um, like I said, I believe that she is just as culpable as Philip, but she was given 36 years to life and she'll never get out of prison either. JC is now living her life to the fullest. She's raising two daughters, she's writing books on her experience and hope of being an advocate for women who have gone through major trauma, showing them, like I said, that you can come up on top no matter how hard it seems. And she is living her best life. She's obviously got struggles, as anybody would, coming out from 18 years you know, 18 years, a lot changes, technology changes, life changes, but she's come out and she is now doing TV shows, she's doing documentaries, she is being the voice for the people who are so scared to speak out. So that's everything. I know this one's been a little bit of a short one, but I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode and I really, really, really suggest that you go and read her book. Just as a reminder, the book is called... A Stolen Life. So for anyone who's interested, you can get it on Amazon. I'm not sponsored. I really just think that you should read the book because it's so much more compelling from her side of the story and goes into so much more detail. Um, but thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. I love a story with a positive ending. The, the previous stories I've done have all ended with a, with a sad ending. So it's nice to finally see that a survivor has come out of this. I'll catch you all next time. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.